Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 196. We will be going to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 13, but first, we will be going to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1. Father, lead us to the rock that is higher than us, and we ask it in his name, amen. Immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, incidentally, our message today will be entitled The Resurrection Implication, something that will bring, be popping up here and there, but one that's completely and totally pertinent to the whole of the homily called Hebrews. So immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, which ended at the close of Matthew 7, Matthew 8, 1 says, When Jesus came down from the hill, large crowds followed him. This is my translation. Then, look, a man afflicted with leprosy approaches him and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I've always been intrigued by that prayer, if you're willing. There was no doubt about if you're able. <laughs> he knew the Lord was able. The doubt, if there was any, or the question was, are you willing? There was no doubt in the man's mind about the Lord's ability, only about his willingness. Here's a principle. Generally, we know of God's power. Sometimes we doubt his mercy, his willingness to be compassionate and to be gracious beyond our deserving. And he is willing. I'm more comforted by his willingness than his ability even. Because his ability is, to me, a foregone conclusion. But his mercy has now become a certainty to me too. Matthew 8, 3. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touches him and says, I'm willing. That is touching. Speaking of touching, that is touching. We need a psychic conversion to appreciate this. And by psychic conversion, I mean we need the kind of sensibility that appreciates what's going on here and appreciates it, yes, even on the level of emotion. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touches him and says, I'm willing, be clean. So, his willingness and compassion meets with his power. And immediately, the leprous man was made clean. Immediately, the leprous man was made clean. You read Leviticus chapter 14, the whole of it sometime. I've urged you to read Numbers 14 once in our study. Now, I urge you to read Leviticus 14 because you know what it is? It's the law of the priests dealing with leprosy. And there's a very long and complicated series of ritual actions that lead to the cleansing of a leper or a leprous person. Here, Jesus cuts the Gordian knot, as it were, 
cuts right through all that and say, says, be clean, and that's all there is to it. But then something very intriguing in verse 4, then Jesus says to him, see that you don't tell anyone. Instead, as a testimony to them, meaning the people of Israel, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. Now, obviously, what we have here is legislation concerning priests and what to do to approach a priest, what offering to bring the priest. These are legislations in the law regarding priests. That was our subject of the parenthesis in 711. So we're still, in a way, in 711. Makes me think of perhaps getting a bag of cheese puffs. But anyways, <laughs> why did I pick this pericope or this little episode of Matthew? First, Jesus' referral of the leprous man to the priest showed that Jesus was not a priest after the order of Aaron and that Jesus himself as much as acknowledge that by saying, show yourself to the priest, take the offering that Moses commanded to the priest. Why? I'm not the priest, I'm referring you to the priest. The Levitic I'm not the Levitical priest after the order of Aaron, so I'm referring you, I'm doing a referral of you to the priest. So Jesus himself acknowledged that he was not a priest after the order of Aaron in the Levitical priest of the Levitical priesthood. Now, the same thing pertains in 7.13 of Hebrews. We'll go there now. Hebrews 7.13, for the one, that is Jesus here is referring, is being referred to, the one about whom these things are being said, meaning the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this one, belongs to a different tribe. from which no one has ever served the altar. There's never been a priest who served the altar who is from another tribe other than Levi. And so the one about whom these things are being said belongs to a different tribe from which no one has ever served the, at the altar. Verse 14, for it is known to everyone. It's, it's just a well-known fact that our Lord arose now, I love this word. It's anatello. A-N-A-T-E-L-L-O. He arose from the tribe of Judah, or out of Judah, the tribe of Judah, anatello. Now, this word anatello has a double meaning. It means that he was born in the tribe of Judah or he came from simply the tribe of Judah or he simply belongs to the tribe of Judah. And is in his humanity, that's true, Anatello. But Anatello also has a resurrection implication attached to it. This word is found in Numbers 24, 17, as well as Isaiah 60 and verse 1. Arise, Israel and 
Messiah will shine on you. If you put Isaiah 60 verse 1 to its equivalent in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.14, you get that. Anatello, again, in Numbers 24.17. So let's back up a bit and read 7.13 again. For the one, that is Jesus, about whom these things are being said, belongs to a different tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14, for it is known to everyone that our Lord arose out of Judah. And Moses never said anything about priests in connection with that tribe. You know what the author's doing here? He's actually using the energy and aggression of his opponent. That's the accusation that was flying around. Your Jesus can't be a priest. Moses never said anything about a priest from Judah serving at the altar. And this is guys walking right into the trap here, the opponent, because the author's going to say, how true that is. We're talking about another kind of priest, heteron priest, from another tribe, heteron tribe, who is predicted to be a superior priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're right. We don't have Jesus as a Levitical archpriest, and he wouldn't even qualify. But we do have Jesus as a priest of a superior order, an infinitely superior order, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not only a priest, but because he comes from Judah, he comes from the royal line, so he's a king and a priest. The objector and the accuser is saying to himself, man, I wish I hadn't even accused them of having no priest. Let's back up one more time in 713. For this one, Jesus, about whom these things are being said, belongs to a different tribe from which no one has ever served the altar. For it is known to everyone that our Lord arose out of Judah. And Moses never said anything about priests in connection with that tribe. Verse 15, and this is even more clear. If another, the word heteron is used again in verse 15, another of a different kind, another priest like Melchizedek arises. Now we have the word arises also. Two words that are resurrection implication. Anistemi is another one. A-N-I-S-T-E-M-I. Anistemi. And this comes into use to mean literally the resurrection from the dead in many passages of scripture, as we'll see. I'm going to work this section over more than once. So... So far, so good. Resurrection implication. Anatello, rising like a star out of Jacob in Numbers 24, 17. Anistemi, rising, arising, having a dual sense, meaning being born in or from the tribe of Judah, but it also means being born from the dead. As the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ, the resurrection implication is here. So why this pericope from Matthew? First, Jesus' referral of the leprous man to the priest showed that Jesus was not a priest after the order of Aaron, nor did he function as a priest in the days of his flesh. Second, in Leviticus chapter 14, to which Jesus referred in speaking of Moses' commandment to the leprous person to offer himself and to offer a gift to the priest, 
It is the priest in Leviticus 14 through an elaborate and lengthy process who is the proximate human agent in the cleansing of the leper. God, of course, being the divine remote agent, as we would call it, or as Aristotle would call it. In the case of the leprous man who approached Jesus, it was Jesus who was the proximate or closest human agent of his cleansing. But it was also Jesus who was the divine agent with the power to cleanse. Jesus showed himself, as we've seen, to be not only willing, but able. And to be not only able, but willing. We could say today, Lord Jesus, are you able to save all of mankind? And he would say, of course I'm able. And then we would say, are you willing? And he would say, of course I am willing. Third then, why did we pick Matthew 8 to start our lesson today or our increment today? Though one could say that Jesus sent this man to the priest because Jesus was not a priest of the order of Aaron, one could also say that Jesus was acting in a priestly way that surpassed the Levitical order and that the commandment of Moses to the priest regarding the purification of leprous persons was surpassed by the instantaneous action of Jesus cleansing him immediately. The priest that he went to may have gotten the point that, wait a minute, there must be a new priest in town who can do this without all this elaborate ritual. Maybe he's even the lamb that would be offered as a gift. Remember the story of the Gordian knot. There was an elaborate knot that no one could undo until Alexander the Great came in one day, just took a sword and cut right through the knot and undid the Gordian knot. That's what Jesus did. Greater than Alexander the Great is a great archpriest. He said, be clean. He cut through all the elaborate ritual and all the Gordian knot, cut right through it and said, be clean, and the man was clean. To exegete the next few verses, let's consider once again question 18. I love this little reference point in Thomas Aquinas because we're going to bend it like Aquinas today. Not bend it like Beckham, we're going to bend it like Aquinas. We're going to take the arc of an argument like Aquinas does to work over this section one more time. I want to be thorough. So, so to exegete these next few verses again, let's consider or to exegete them more thoroughly, let's consider question 18, article three, in part one of Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, which we already dealt with a couple times already. We're gonna use this as a model for our method. And I'm gonna summarize the, the gist of it. Question 18, article three asks, quote, whether life is properly attributed to God. Is life properly attributed to God? Thomas answers, life in the highest degree or life is in the highest degree properly in God. So by answering in this way, Thomas allows and shows that not only is life properly attributed to God,
but life in the highest degree is properly attributed to him. So someone would say, well, God isn't alive like a tree, or God isn't alive like a horse, or God isn't alive like a man. And Thomas would say, no, but he's alive with a life that is in a higher degree than that of the man or the horse or the tree. Similarly, we would say in answer to the question, let's pose this question. Whether the title and office of priest is properly attributed to Jesus. Our answer would be, priest as a title and office of the highest degree is attributed to Jesus. Consequently, in answer to the objection that Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi and thus not qualified to be a priest, we would concede using the energy of our opponent against him and the direction of his argument against him, we would concede that Jesus was not and is not qualified to be a priest after the order of Aaron. But we would add that he is of a higher order, one prefigured in Melchizedek. And this is essentially what the teaching pastor does in this paragraph. I'm simply taking the argument of the pastor in this homily and changing it into an Aquinine or Thomist type of an argument. Thomas would bend the arc of the argument like this. And so we'll bend it like Aquinas. Question. And this will all be in print. I'm showing the format here, the method that Thomas uses that we're using to exegete this passage. Question, whether Jesus is qualified to be a priest. Objection, there are objections to that. Objection one, Jesus is not qualified to be a priest because he is not of the tribe of Levi and did not descend from Aaron. Objection two, the regulations given to the people of Israel clearly stipulated that only Aaron and his descendants could act as priests. These regulations were in the Torah. If Jesus were to take the role and function of a priest, he would be in violation of the regulations strictly stipulated in the law of Moses. But then... Thomas has, I answer that, he replies. And therefore, the PT would answer that objection, and he would say, I answer that. Jesus is a priest of a higher order than the Levitical priesthood and the order of Aaron. Then he would reply to objection one. Reply to objection one. Though Jesus could not be a priest of the Levitical order, not being of the proper tribe, nor having descended from Aaron, he is nevertheless eminently qualified to be a priest as prefigured by Melchizedek, which does not require a priestly genealogy. Reply to objection two, that Jesus is declared to be the priest forever as prefigured in Melchizedek, of whom there is no record of a priestly genealogy, means that not only is the Levitical priesthood superseded by the priesthood of Jesus, but the very legislation that appoints priests is countermanded 
being superseded by the power of an endless life. That's called bending it like Aquinas. And perhaps then we would even pose a counter question to our opponent and say, how can the law of physical descent, which requires another priest to succeed a priest who dies, still be in effect if the priest in question can never die? We'd almost call that a sockdologer, which is a knockout punch in an argument. Once again, it's advantageous to consider either the accusation or the objection, and here we're getting into the territory of the invisible enemies. Once again, it's advantageous to consider either the accusation or the objection that may have been leveled at this little messianic community to which this homily was initially addressed so that it can be refuted. The objection is stated so that it can be refuted. Here's the objection, or in the invisible realm, it constitutes an accusation. Your Jesus, whom you confess as the Son of God, can't be an archpriest because he's not even of the tribe of Levi. It's only from that tribe that Moses authorized priests. The teaching pastor takes this in stride by answering or anticipating that accusation, and like a good Aikido master, uses the aggressive energy of his foe against his foe. Here it is again. See, we're reworking this, working it over and reworking. 7.13, for the one about whom these things are being said belongs to a different tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. In 7.11, we saw more than once another different kind of priest. A different kind of priest. In the Greek text, and you'll see this in print if you wish or if you're interested, is heteron, hard breathing, so it would be H to us. Heteron. Heteron where we get the word heterosexual, for example. Heteron means another of a different kind, another of a different sort or category. Heteron. And then we have priest. Heteron, and then we have priest, another priest. So, Again, in 7.11, as we saw more than once, another different kind of priest is heteron, and then it is the word priest, hiera, H-I-E-R-E-A, which is hiera. But in between, uh, watch this, this is, I, I love seeing this in the Greek, when I read the Greek text, it's glory, it's like staring at glory. Between heteron and hiera, another priest, is this word, and it's anastemi. I'll just do the English transliteration, which is a word that implies resurrection. Another resurrected priest. Another priest. 
constituted by resurrection. So in 711, another kind, a different kind of priest, heteron, hiera. In the word order between heteron and hiera, hieria for priest, is the verb anetastai or anastasai which is a form of anastemi, a New Testament word often used for resurrection from the dead. For example, Matthew 9.10, first, and also in John 6.39, in Acts 2.24, in Acts 13.34, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, as a representative sample. In 7.11 of Hebrews, it has the primary sense of to be born, to be sure. But it's plain to see the resurrection implication here. We find the same thing in Hebrews 7.15. Heteron and Hiera also found in 7.15, repeated for clarity, literally repeated for clarity. We have the same word, heteron, hieria, another kind of priest, with anastasi in between, which is a form of anastemi or resurrection. Same in 7.15. So, this title, The Resurrection Implication, is brought into sharper focus here. And more even, more clearly in 716, where the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews says explicitly that this different priest is one on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. What's being contrasted here? Physical descent that ends in death, the power of an indissoluble life as a result of resurrection. Jesus is related to the power of an indissoluble life. Aaron is related to the carnal commandment or the weak and fleshly commandment of physical descent, which always ends in death and the passing of the baton to the next generation. How does a priest have an indestructible life, is the question. How does a priest, this priest, have an indestructible life, and how is he a priest forever, if not by resurrection from the dead? Here in 713, then, we have another use of the adjective heteron, this time describing a different tribe. So we have heteron describing priest in 7.11 and 7.15, but in the middle in 7.13 we have the word heteron describing a different tribe. Phules, P-H-U-L-E-S. Phules heteros. Phules heteros, another different tribe. So this different kind of priest belongs to a different tribe from that of Aaron and sons. And that's the objection, you see. Jesus can't be a Levitical priest because he's not from the right tribe. A lot of that going around today. You're not of the right ethnicity. You're not of the right tribe. You're not of the right this or that. You're not of the right this or that. So we're going to treat you differently than other people. He's not of the right tribe. But the reply to this objection, simply put, is this, right. 
He can't be a Levitical priest, but he is uniquely qualified to be the other kind of priest like Melchizedek, a superior priest and that forever. And that requires a countermanding of the command by which Levitical priests were made priests. Jesus transcends the tribal qualification. Jesus transcends tribal qualification. Jesus transcends racial distinctions. Moreover, being born of the tribe of Judah, he is also a king. He happens to be the long-awaited messianic descendant of David, whose throne is forever. In Hebrews 1.8, the priest forever has a throne forever. The priest is a king. So like Melchizedek who prefigured him, Jesus is not only a priest to the Most High God, his father, but he's also a king. It could even be said that Jesus is more eminently qualified than Melchizedek himself to be called the king of righteousness and the king of peace. As such, Jesus is the great king, Matthew 5.35, Psalm 48.3, Septuagint 47.3, who reigns in the city of God called the heavenly Jerusalem. His royalty was concealed by his kenosis and self-humiliation in the days on earth, in his days on earth. But now he is crowned with the glory of divine royalty and the honor of an unending priesthood, arch priesthood. Hebrews 7.13, again. For the one about whom these things are being said belongs to a different tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Consider this. Later on in the homily, the PT says, we have an altar. And it's a different altar from the altar that the Levitical priests served at. And so to paraphrase, all the way up into Hebrews 13.10. We also eat from this altar because we're a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2.5 and 2.9 verify this as, long as, as well as Revelation 1.5 and 6. So we eat from the altar of the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of the Lamb of God. God loves to do new things, unprecedented things, things un unanticipated. He does them in your life too, Isaiah 48, 7. Don't say they're already here. I make them now. I create them now. God can, set, God can create a set of circumstances in your life suddenly as a fiat and change everything about your life to the good. He creates them now. God loves 
to do new things, things unanticipated by us human beings and even by the angels, which is why angels like to peer into the things he does. They're amazed. What's he doing down there now? Both the Hebrew writer and Paul speak in a way that hints that the Levitical priests were still practicing at the time of the writing. Despite the fact that Jesus' self-offering and priesthood had gloriously superseded them. So their actions obviously were redundant. And at that time, meaningless. Now we know that their actions had great meaning in terms of anticipation, in terms of typology, of course, and we would never diminish that value. But when the one who comes to supersede and countermand that order, then we don't say, no, I'm going by the old orders. If a captain gives me an order to carry out a mission, and I carry out the mission, but then he countermands that order because of things that have intervened and sends to me a different order. And I say, no, I'm going to go by the first order you gave me. That's disobedience. That's insubordination. Again, Paul and the writer to the Hebrews speak in a way that kind of implies that this is still going on. There are still people serving at the altar, still priests serving at the altar. The thing is ongoing. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9.13, Paul says, Don't you know that those who perform, and it's in the present middle participle still going on when Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar are partakers of the altar, meaning of the food offered there. Well, we have an altar that they who serve the old altar can't eat from. So the teaching pastor brings up the altar again, revealing a new and different altar at which the Levitical priests were unqualified to eat. And that's Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent don't have a right to eat. That's just introducing something down the road here. Hebrews 7.14. Hebrews 7.14. We're going line by line. For it is known to everyone that our Lord arose. There's the resurrection implication again. This time not anastemi, but anatello. Anatello. As in, again, Numbers 24:17, which is Balaam's fourth prophetic oracle, as long, along with Isaiah 60 and verse 1. For it is written, known to everyone that our Lord arose out of Judah. Now what he means is that he was born of the tribe of Judah and belongs to Judah. But the implication here is one of resurrection. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I think he was getting at. Because again, in verse 16, the result of his arising is an indissoluble life. So that clarifies that he's dealing with resurrection here. For it is known to everyone that our Lord arose out of Judah, and Moses never said anything about priests in connection with that tribe. So to me, that's saying 
So there must be a priest from another tribe. For it is known to everyone that our Lord arose. Now again, there's the resurrection implication, the title of today's increment. Moreover, Jesus arose, we could say genetically, out of Judah as the root and offspring of David in Revelation 22:16. And Moses never said anything about priests in connection with that tribe. So using the opponent's energy and direction or argument against him, much like Paul against his opponent in the dialectic in Romans about justification, the PT takes the objection, Jesus can't be a priest because he's not of the tribe of Levi, and says, precisely, he can't be a Levitical priest, but he can be and in fact is a priest, no, he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Moses never spoke of anyone serving the altar or eating from the altar who comes from elsewhere than Levi's tribe. But David does. And he speaks of his messianic descendant as being that very one. A priest forever as prefigured in Melchizedek. How many times have we said that in all these increments? Count them if you want. A lot. First of all, Jesus is a priest forever. Or as Hebrews 5.10 and 6.20 aptly put it, aiming our exegetical bow and arrow backwards. Hebrews 5.10 and 6.20. An arch priest forever. Because he is an eternal person. Our Lord Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. He isn't half human and half divine. He's fully human and fully divine with two natures as one hypostasis or person. However, secondly, the main consideration in his priesthood is his human nature because as a priest, he is a mediator between God and humankind, meaning the one God and all of humankind. In 1 Timothy 2.5, he's called the only mediator between God and humanity with the accent on his human nature. For it says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man. Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus is distinct from all other human beings because he is both divine and human, humanly divine and divinely human. Everything Jesus did and still does, he did and still does as a divine being acting humanly as the sole, S-O-L-E, mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus is one person with the natures of God and of humanity. Christ Jesus, the only mediator between the one God and all of humanity, is also called the one who died in Romans 8.34. And the one who died has been resurrected from the dead. 
and who advocates and intercedes for all of humanity at the right hand of God. He is not an archpriest who intercedes temporarily and only for the people of Israel. He is an archpriest who intercedes perpetually for all of humanity over the course of all time. The only mediator, Mesites, which we'll see later on, between God and all of humanity is the man, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the God-man, the man who acts divinely as well as humanly. Or perhaps it's better to say that all Jesus does, he does as a divine person acting humanly. The archpriests of the Levitical order were not permanent mediators between God and all of humankind. They acted as temporary representatives of the people of Israel to the God of Israel. As archpriests, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, as well as for the sins of the people of Israel. In Hebrews 7.27, Melchizedek, king of Salem, and priest to the Most High God was not merely a representative of Israel to God. As a priest of God Most High, who predated the Levitical priesthood, he represented or prefigured a priesthood that was far more universal. His significance has a universal implication. Melchizedek's significance has a universal implication. He is a prefiguration of a mediator with universal significance. Such a mediator is the man Christ Jesus. For there is one God. This one God is the most high God. And there is one mediator between God and humankind. That is, all of humankind. He doesn't stand between part of God and part of humanity. He stands between all of God and all of humanity. And in him is all of God and all of humanity. Melchizedek was a prefiguration of Jesus who is an archpriest not only representing the people of Israel to God, the God of Israel, but all of humanity to the most high God. Beyond Melchizedek, Jesus' high priestly significance is not only universal, it is universally salvific or saving because as Sergius Bulgakov put it elegantly and succinctly, quote, in Christ, no more foundation remains for death. Its power is exhausted, and he is resurrected from the dead, close quote. As the Brits would say, death is knackered. In a horse race, if a horse just stops dead, it's because he's knackered. He's totally exhausted. He's done. That's what happened to death in this horse race. The resurrection from the dead of Jesus our Lord is the end of death itself. 
And so Christ, in Christ, all of humanity, all of creation, will be made alive in the new creation of all things for eternal life. Now it should be reiterated. Reiteration is an important part in teaching, repetition. It should be reiterated that Melchizedek was a priest to God Most High. Hebrew, El Elyon, or Ha Elyon. The Greek is to Theu to Hupsistu. Hebrews 7.1. And I'm going to make probably a little addendum. I'm thinking in my mind even now, making an addendum on the Most High God. And I even have a graphic in mind to do for that. This Most High God is found in Genesis 14, 18, Genesis 14, 19, and 20, and 22. So it's mentioned three times within the little mention of Melchizedek. And then again, a couple of verses later, 14, 22. It's also found in Numbers 24, 16, in connection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in prophecy. It is more than interesting then that the name the Most High God is found four times in Genesis 14, three of those times in connection with Melchizedek, who is said to be a priest of the Most High God. However, the name Most High also appears in Numbers 24, 16 to 17 in a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in which the word anatello is used and anistemi is used rather, anistemi is used. Anisteme, for resurrection, in Numbers 24, 17, Septuagint. So I'll say that again, it's more than interesting that the name, the Most High God, is found four times in Genesis 14, three of those times in connection with Melchizedek, who is said to be a priest of the Most High God. However, the name Most High also appears in Numbers, chapter 24, verses 16 and 17, in the prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's called Balaam's Fourth Prophetic Oracle, and it goes like this, Numbers 24, 15 through 17, to get the context. He took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, says, the man who truly sees... One who truly understands understanding, the nature of true insight, of the Most High, Hupsistu, and who sees a divine vision in sleep when his eyes had been unveiled. I will point to him, verse 17, but not now. I consider him blessed, but not near. A star shall arise, this time, Anistami. A star, and Jesus said, I'm the bright morning star. A star shall arise from Israel, and he shall crush the leaders of Moab and shall spoil all the sons of Seth. This seems like a local prophecy, but it ultimately is a universal prophecy for the leaders of Moab and the sons of Seth represent all mankind. This is ultimately a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the universal submission of all of humanity to him. And again, I mention this because the term most high applied to God three times in connection with Melchizedek in Genesis is given in numbers in connection specifically with the resurrection of Jesus, the star from Israel, whose birth incidentally was announced by a star or 
better a configuration of luminaries. It's notable that in Revelation 22:16b, in the last self-description of Jesus in all the Bible, he says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Melchizedek, priest to the Most High God, Jesus, the Son of the Most High, and priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see Jesus, the Son of the Most High, and the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice verse 15 of, verse, of chapter 7. And this is even more clear. We always strive for more clarity as teachers, as pastors who teach, as teaching pastors. A teacher of any subject should strive for more clarity. Good teaching proceeds from obscurity to clarity, from a hint to a full-on declaration. Hebrews 7.15, and this is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek arises, there we have anatello, which is another word that implies resurrection from the dead. This is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek arises who doesn't become a priest on the basis of a legal commandment based on fleshly descent. Please note the connection here of 7.16 with the parenthesis in 7.11 that we developed in our increment 195, and this is increment 196. And this is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek arises who doesn't become a priest on the basis of a legal commandment based on fleshly descent, but based on the power of a life that cannot be brought to an end. Kata dunamen zoes akaraluto. The Greek word to describe the indestructible life is another A word. We're getting more A words here today, unexpectedly. It's a kata luto. You'll see the Greek in the print. A kata luto or a kata lutos. And this means indestructible. The Greek word to describe this indestructible life then is akatalutos. It has an interesting connection to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 where Paul figuratively describes our mortal human body as an earthly tent and our death as the tent being dismantled or destroyed and the word is kataluo dismantled or destroyed. Ah is an alpha privative. It deprives this from happening. Kataluo then is to dissolve or be destroyed. Ah kataluto means no ability to be destroyed, will never be destroyed, never dissolved. So the indestructible resurrection body which Jesus occupies now and which we will all have when he appears a second time or evidently when we die is by contrast said to be a house not made with hands. 
our earthly tent, destructible, perishable, can be struck and folded up. Or it can be burned or destroyed in many different ways. Is contrasted with a house not made with hands, eternal or everlasting in the heavens. Another A word, A-I-O-N. Should be familiar to you. I-O-N, aeonion, everlasting in the heavens. So we have this earthly tent, when it's struck or dismantled, we have then already, we have instantly, not waiting for it after a long soul sleep, we have instantly an indestructible house in the heavens not made with hands or pitched by human hands we could say so the indestructible resurrection body which Jesus occupies now and which we will all have when he appears a second time or when we die is by contrast said to be a house not made with hands everlasting in the heavens when it says that Jesus has become an archpriest based on the power of a life that can't be brought to an end the author is saying that Jesus is an archpriest by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, from which point on he has an incorruptible, immortal, and imperishable human body, also called a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15:44, if I remember correctly. It is in that body that he intercedes for us now and to the moment when he submits himself to the Father when God becomes all in all. Our hope, and that's going to become another thing again in 719, 722 and all the way through the rest of Hebrews. Our hope is inextricably, inextricably connected to that body and to that deathless life. For when our deliverer comes from heaven, he will change the bodies of our temple temporary humiliation what is life it's a temporary humiliation he will change the bodies of our temporary humiliation into bodies of glory when he was here his kenosis his self-emptying and his humiliation concealed his royalty we are a royal priesthood that fact is concealed from our contemporaries we're sinners we sin Yes, we do. Don't say I'm a Christian so I don't sin. Don't sing that stupid song. Never been a sinner, never sinned. I got a friend in Jesus. You got a friend in Jesus, but baby, you have sinned. And you are a sinner. Why is the world so shocked when a Christian sins? Why is a Christian so shocked when he or she sins? We sin. We are sinners. We acknowledge our sin. And we recover our spiritual lives. And our royalty is concealed during this time of humiliation. But our royalty will be revealed when he comes again and changes these bodies of humiliation into bodies of glory like the one he has. So he will do this 
by the same omnipotent power by which he will subject all things and all beings to himself as he acts in concert with the Father. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, Psalm 110, 1, Psalm 109, 1, Septuagint, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, etc. So Hebrews 7, 17, we'll go that far today. For it has been testified of him, Jesus, that is, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Or we could say simply, you're a priest forever like Melchizedek or prefigured in Melchizedek. You say, he did it again. He said that again in 717, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yes, he did. He must believe in reiteration, in repetition for clarification. So in closing, the testimony about him, Jesus, is a solemn asseveration. I don't want to be showing off a vocabulary here. I don't really have a big vocabulary, but I do have a word-a-day calendar. And in that, there is this word, asseveration, A-S-S-E-V-E-R-A-T-I-O-N. Now, within this word, there is a descriptive word for people who show off their big vocabulary. It's A-S-S. But here's the longer word, asseveration, asseveration. Asseveration means a solemn affirmation. A, like when Jesus said, amen, amen, I say to you. Twice he says amen. He doubles up the amen. That's an asseveration. That's an earnest affirmation. And when Jesus says it, you better believe it because it's believable. The testimony about him is in Psalm 110.4 is a solemn asseveration. And to asseverate is to affirm earnestly. The God-breathed and unbreakable scripture testifies of the solemn acclamation, we could call it, made by God the Father to his Son in eternity. An acclamation that echoes in time. Once again, in this case, the phrase ton aeona cannot mean merely for the age, but forever or without end, because the duration of his priestly office is the duration of a life that cannot be brought to an end. This is the final reference to the name Melchizedek in Hebrews and in all the Bible. The point, therefore, hopefully, has been driven home. That Jesus is the priest forever like Melchizedek and that his priesthood is substantially superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. In fact, infinitely superior. I'll say that again. This is the last reference to Melchizedek by name in Hebrews and in the Bible. Even though a partial quotation of Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, is given in Hebrews 7.21, right down the road a little bit, and allusions to the same verse are made with the use of forever in Hebrews 7.24 and 7.28, the last verse in Hebrews 7. So we'll close simply by reading the translation beginning with verse 15. 
And this is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek arises who doesn't become a priest on the basis of a legal commandment based on fleshly descent, but based on the power of a life that cannot be brought to an end. For it has been testified of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice how that goes. The last phrase in verse 16, the power of a life that cannot be brought to an end for it has been testified to him, of him, you are a priest forever. A life that can't be brought to an end, so you're a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, simply means as prefigured in Melchizedek. What's prefigured in Melchizedek is real in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the reality of Jesus and for Jesus who is reality and we thank you for this uh, this increment 196 may it find a home in our hearts and even beyond that may Christ dwell at home in our hearts through faith and may we be deeply grounded deeply founded in love as a result because of a faith that works by love we ask this in Jesus' name with the absolute confidence that you'll do it. Amen.